That's kind of nice. We had a formal procession this morning. I didn't even plan that. It was nice. Good morning, everyone. Welcome again to Lighthouse Bible Church today. As we begin, let us enter into prayer together. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for who you are. We thank you that you're God of love and justice. We thank you, Father, that you have given us your son, Jesus Christ, to die for our sins and to be raised from the dead. We thank you also, Father, that salvation is so simple for human beings. It's simply a matter of hearing the truth about Jesus Christ and believing that, believing in him. Father, today we would ask that the Holy Spirit would guide each one of us and direct each one of our hearts into the truths that you wish us to absorb today and to the fellowship that we would have with one another, the love in our hearts. We also pray this morning, Father, for the members of the body of Christ, all of them, especially, Father, those who are in a very difficult situation this morning, that we may all rally around those people and pray for them and understand that we are all one in your Son. We ask this in Jesus' name, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please stand and worship with us. I don't know why, but I just had a Mary Poppins moment there. Hannah was walking out of there. Good morning again, everyone. Welcome again to Lighthouse Bible Church. Our missionary organization this month has been Village Ministries International. They're based in Yukon, Oklahoma. They're non-denominational. They go to remote parts of the world preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ and then building up indigenous pastors in that location. I do get their weekly newsletter, and this week... And talks about a pastor's workshop, and I'd like to read the paragraph that they sent. A foundation's workshop was conducted in Malawi to train 200 pastors to help provide a solid foundation for their ministries. The pastors were very excited about the foundation's workbook in Ch- here we go, Chichua, their own language, and especially the study questions at the end of each chapter. To see their excitement when they could use their Bibles to answer these questions and see their growth. And handling the word of God was a blessing. The pastors said that the workshop was like pure gold and would aid them in the study of scripture and in their own spiritual growth. So that's another sampling of the kind of work and kind of uh, fruit that this ministry um, has. And again, please support it in any way you can, definitely with prayer, if possible with financial support. Also, um, next Sunday, uh, Steve Pomeroy will be teaching. And that should be great. I believe he's teaching on the second part of First Peter. Um, my wife and I, my Roberta and I, will be bringing our son Jack up to the United States Military Academy at West Point. Yeah, we'll be keeping him in our prayers. And I do have to say that I am mighty proud of that young man. Yeah. We have Bibles in the back. If anyone needs one, you can raise your hand and we'll have somebody bring it to you. And also we have, there we go. Thank you, Aaron. We have a prayer meeting every Thursday also after Bible study, and we would welcome your requests so that we can pray for you and any um, intentions or petitions that you have. Um, You can enter those prayers on our website. You'll see there's a a square on the first page there, my technical term, square. And then also you can, we have a back, we can put, you can write them down and put them in the foyer. We have a little place to put that as well. All right. We are, of course, in 1 Corinthians, and 1 Corinthians has its share of challenges, both for, the, for us who are reading it and the ones who teach it. Today is no exception. We are going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, 
So you can turn there, although we will start a little bit before that so that we set the stage for chapter 7. So if you want, really, you can turn to chapter 6, verse 16. Chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians, verse 16. As you turn there to chapter 6, verse 16, I want to give you the title of today's message. It's from chapter 7, and it's better to marry than to burn. Hey, this is the word of God. Better to marry than to burn. We'll see a a lot more about what that's all about today. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16. Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says, the word of God says, the Lord says, the two shall become one flesh. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. We should never forget that we are joined to the Lord at the moment we believe in Christ. And that's a presence in our lives every day. And we ought to keep that in mind to guide our behavior. And then he says right after that, flee immorality. There's no uh, confusion possible about that statement. You can't parse it or wonder what the Greek says. No, flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body. But the immoral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who's in you? As well, whom you have from God, the Holy Spirit. You're not your own. You've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Glorify God in your body. That's, that's chapter 6 ending there. Glorify God in your body. Now, some people think that chapter 7 is an entirely new subject. Part of the reason they think that is because Paul, for the first time, addresses something that they wrote to him in the letter that they sent him. But it's really a continuation Known as this. Glorify God in your body now concerning the things about which you wrote. It is good for a man not to touch a woman. But because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife and each woman is to have her own husband. The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, also, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Stop depriving one another, except by agreement for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again, so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. But this I say by way of concession, not of command. Yet, I wish that all men were even as I myself am. However... Each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and one in that. But I say to the unmarried and to widows that it's good for them if they remain even as I. But if they do not have self-control, let them marry. For it is better to marry than to burn. I know it says with passion, and that's not bad, but the original Greek just says to burn. And I think it's more dramatic that way. Now again, remember, chapter 6 ends with that statement, glorify God in your body. And from the context of chapter 6, we know it's referring primarily to sexual behavior. The way in which you you behave in the sexual area, do so to glorify God. And so the question then becomes, how do we do that? How do we glorify God in our body when it comes to sex? There's so many people think that those two are totally mutually exclusive. That somehow sex is dirty and that you can't, you can't really speak about glorifying God. Yeah, it's something that you're allowed to do, but that doesn't, you know, what are you talking about, right? Well, but that's not true at all. But it's interesting, you know, if you think about it, glorifying God in your body, 
Chapter 6 tells us how not to do it, right? Immorality is not glorify God, especially, particularly, gratifying one's sexual urges by paying for sex with a stranger. That definitely does not glorify God. Now, the Corinthians, they went to extremes when it comes to this subject of sexuality. I don't know why, but I kind of think of the movie Animal House when I think about them. But in general, just young, immature adolescents, right, who go to one extreme to the other, you know. One day they think they can do whatever they want with their sexuality. The next day they figure, oh no, I'm going to be pure, I'm going to be better than everybody else. And because they're immature. Well, the Corinthians, as we know, are immature in the faith. And so you see this extreme behavior coming out from that church. On the one hand, you had a man, remember, in chapter 5, who was sleeping with his father's wife. Then later on, Paul has to deal with men who were going to prostitutes. That's one extreme in the area of sexuality. Now, in chapter 7, we find that some in Corinth were into celibacy, refraining from sex. And by the way, and there's a place for that, as we'll see. But the problem was they were trying to force others to be like them. They were trying to force everybody to be celibate, including married people. And that's just, that's a recipe for disaster. So Paul has to deal with that. One extreme to the other. Paul receives reports of sexual immorality from Chloe's people who came from Corinth to visit Paul. Then, think of it, he opens this letter from the church and he finds them touting celibacy. He must have been scratching his head. And that's where we pick things up today in chapter 7. Now, let me, let me just say one thing about chapter 7. This will save us all a lot of grief and confusion. We have to understand what Paul's doing in chapter 7. Now, certainly, yes, the subject matter is celibacy, marriage, divorce. That's clearly the subject matter. There's no denying it in chapter 7. But by no means is this a systematic study of the subject. It's not a systematic study of the subject of marriage. He's not teaching a series on marriage. So often, that's the way this chapter is approached. That's not what Paul is doing here. Okay? What is he doing? He is responding. He's responding to particular problems in the church at Corinth at that time. And so what he writes about marriage and divorce and celibacy is, a, is addressed and focused on dealing with the problem. It doesn't cover everything about that subject, not hardly at all. In fact, you have to really go, for example, to Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 to 23, to really see a teaching on marriage. He doesn't bring up, for example, um, husbands sacrificing for their wives in this chapter. He doesn't bring up wives honoring and being submissive to their husbands in this chapter. He doesn't talk about the fact that husbands and wives are one, but that's a picture of the oneness between Christ and his church. He doesn't say that in chapter 7. Very specific, limited, because he's dealing with problems in Corinth. One in in particular. And it might not be the one you think. See, there's a tendency here to generalize his statements into a theology of marriage, but that's a mistake. Okay, keep that in mind. Let's begin now in chapter chapter 7, starting in verse 1. Now, concerning the things about which you wrote, 
right here, he's now, I, he's, this is how we know, by the way, that he's received the letter from them, because he says the things that you wrote, he said, now I'm turning my attention to some of the things that are in your letter. And by the way, he is not necessarily going in the same order that they wrote. You see, it's clear that he was continuing what he was teaching about in chapter 6. And so what they wrote about celibacy is not necessarily the first thing, but it's the one thing that fits in the line of thinking that he's pursuing in chapter 6 and on to chapter 7. Now, concerning the things about which you wrote in your letter, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. But because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife, and each woman is to have her own husband. The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife, and likewise also the wife to her husband. By the way, you can see already that if you take this a certain way, namely that verse 1 is Paul teaching his viewpoint, then he starts contradicting himself in the very next verse. I mean, he says, look, it's good for a woman not to touch a woman. Never to have any kind of sexual contact with a woman ever. If that's what people think this is, his teaching. But then he goes on, each man is to have his own wife. We'll see, have doesn't mean get married. Okay? It, It means to have sex. Each woman is to have her own husband. Wait a minute. You just said that they should never touch, and now you're telling them to have sex. Paul, what's wrong with you? Nothing. We'll see this in a minute. Verse 3, the husband must fulfill his duty to his wife and also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise also, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Stop depriving one another, except by agreement for a time. In other words, depriving here again, context. It's not talking about depriving somebody of their favorite meal. All right? It's talking about depriving one another of sex, okay? Except by agreement. Notice the word agreement. What does that mean? Both of them have to agree, all right? By agreement for a time, just for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But please come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. But this I say by way of, let me change the word, permission. Paul is granting permission here. Okay? He says, I say this by way of permission, but not command. I'm not commanding you to do what I say in verse 5, by the way, and what he continues to say. Yet I wish that all men were even as I myself am. Paul was celibate. It means he didn't have sex. He didn't have a wife. Okay? However, each man has his own gift from God. One in this manner, celibacy, and another in that manner, marriage. But I say to the unmarried. So far, we'll see he's been talking to the married people. Now in verse 8, he's addressing the unmarried and the widows. He says, not to those, the unmarried and the widows, it's good for them if they remain even as I. I want you to notice he doesn't say that it's bad for them if they don't. Okay, He says it's good. There is something very good about being in in the state of celibacy. We'll see more about that. It is good for them if they remain even as I. But if they do not have self-control, let them marry. Boy, does that sound negative? Doesn't it sound like the better people are celibate? And the people, you know, self-control is supposed to be a fruit of the Spirit. And so therefore, if you don't have it, you're a lesser human being than the ones that are celibate. By the way, that's not at all what Paul says there. I'm going to leave you in suspense. That's not what he's talking about. If they do not have self-control, let them marry. For it is better to marry than to burn. 
Verse 1, now concerning the things about which you wrote, I'm turning to your letter now, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. So again, now Paul is addressing something that the Corinthians wrote in their letter to him. It's no longer a report that he received. It's the letter right from them. Now here's the key. This is the key to the whole understanding of this this section of chapter 7 and more, by the way. The statement in verse 1, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. That is taken from their letter. They wrote that. These are not Paul's words. This is not Paul's teaching. We'll see, we'll see exactly what it is. You see, there were, remember, there, well, you don't remember, I'm going to tell you, there's a faction now in Corinth, the celibacy faction. Now, now what does it mean to be a faction? Well, what it means is that, hey, we got the right teaching, we're doing it right, you're doing it wrong. That's what factions are all about. Right? They, we saw that earlier. I'm of Paul. I'm of Apollos. I'm of Jesus. Right? We're doing it right. You're doing it wrong. So there was a faction in Corinth at the time that was saying, we found out that celibacy is the key to spiritual growth, and we're doing it right, and you're doing it wrong. And that, that statement, it is good for a man not to touch a woman, standing by itself, sounding like it's a general principle, that's something they wrote in their letter. That is not Paul's teaching. Just remember that. What did they want to do? They wrote this, this, this statement. It is good for a man not to touch a woman. And they wanted Paul to put his stamp of approval. They wanted him to endorse that as a blanket statement that applied to everyone. Therefore, that would cement their superiority. And they could say, see, we told you. Paul agrees with us. It is good for a man not to touch a woman. And that way they could continue to coerce the married couples not to have sex anymore. That's really what's going on. They were saying, celibacy is it. You married people, stop having sex if you want to be spiritually elite, right? And also, you know, he talked about any unmarried people. If you get married, that's just not right because you're, not, you're saying you don't want to be celibate. And celibacy is the spiritual thing to do. Now, now think about Paul in this whole matter. You see, that kind of thing... That, the party and what they were saying in Corinth, they, that puts Paul in a bind. Why? Because he was celibate himself. They figured, how can he argue with that? He's one of us. He's celibate too. We've seen him talk about the advantages of being celibate. So we're just going to take that to the next level and say it's not good for a man to touch a woman. And everybody who isn't online with that is because something wrong in their spiritual life. See, they were taking a good principle too far. There are advantages to being celibate. Okay, there are. Paul will talk later in this letter about that. He will talk about undistracted devotion to the Lord. He will say that a husband, his, his, his attention is divided between the things of the Lord and how to please his wife. And he'll say the same thing about a wife. See, that's the disadvantage to being married and the advantage to being celibate. But please don't misunderstand. This is not that one is good and one is bad. It's looking at this particular situation has advantages. That's all it is. So they were taking it way beyond that. You know, they, they, they were taking things way too far. Paul's addressing this to kind of bring them back down to reality about this whole subject, especially with the married. And he's saying basically, listen, you guys who think that celibacy is a be-all and end-all from everybody, for everybody, I need to set you straight. In other words, he writes this to correct 
that misunderstanding, to correct it. Now, what's the truth about celibacy? I've already said this once. It has practical advantages for the Christian life. It really does. Again, if if you're married, you spend a lot of time with your responsibilities as a husband or a wife. That could be time that could be spent on on undistracted devotion to the Lord. For example, and I've experienced this myself, when you're married and have children, especially under the age of 18, your prayer life is more of a challenge than if you're single or, or married and don't have children. Okay, for example. Doesn't mean you can't do it, but practically speaking, there are some issues that you have to deal with in order to continue that. It's more of a struggle. So celibacy has, notice the word, practical advantages. In other words, it doesn't make you more spiritual. It doesn't mean God likes you anymore. As a matter of fact, what we're going to see is that the only reason that you can be celibate is because God has given a gift to you to be that. He's also given a gift to the married people. You see, it's not that one is good and one is bad. It's just that there are differences. Okay. So again, celibacy has practical advantages for the Christian life, but it's only, only for those who have received the grace gift from God that enables them to abstain from sex. It's a gift. Most people don't have this gift. All right? It's rather rare in my you know, experience with people. Most people, the overwhelming majority, as I've observed it, don't have this gift. Just like, but that shouldn't surprise us in a way. I mean, isn't that true of all the spiritual gifts, in a way? Not everybody has the gift of communication. A few. Doesn't mean that that person is a better person, that God loves them more, that they're more spiritual. No, actually, Paul says the opposite, by the way, in chapter 12. He says, you do know that the, that the more um, attractive gifts are, be, are given to the less attractive people, right? So it's not a reason to boast. It's just a reason to understand that God has differences, different functions. There's a function for the celibate, and there's a function for the married. Only though, celibacy is only for people who have received a gift from God that enables them to abstain from sex. Okay. It doesn't make somebody superior or extra spiritual. As a matter of fact, it is unjust to force it upon married couples and even unmarried people who don't have that gift of celibacy. It's unjust. It's not fair. It's wrong. It's dangerous to force people who don't have the gift of celibacy not to be married. It's dangerous. Why? We're going to see this in a minute. But what it, what it means to have the gift of celibacy basically means that you don't have the same same intensity of desire that the people that are not with that gift have. So the people that don't have that gift have intense desires. Now, if you tell them that they cannot fulfill that in the God-ordained way, marriage, then guess what's going to happen? They're going to, find, they're going to eventually, they, yeah, they have willpower, they're going to do their best, but eventually they're going to find another way to, to, to satisfy that urge. That's why it's dangerous to force celibacy on people that don't have that gift. All right, that's verse 1, right? Said a lot about it, but that's again because so often we have to get oriented correctly when we begin a portion of the Scriptures. Context always matters. You cannot, you cannot, you cannot pluck a verse out of the book and then 
make, make it up as, your, as a teaching without addressing and observing and being um, addressing the fact that it's in a context. We're gonna, there's a lot of that here. We're going to see that in a minute. Verse 2. But because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife, and each woman is to have her own husband. The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. I want to point something out. In verse 1, who does he address? Verse 1 now. Who does he address? It is good for a, a man. He talks to the man. He says it's good for the man not to touch a woman. Does he, is that reciprocal? Does it turn around and then say, and it's good for a woman not to touch a man? He does not, does he? It's a one-way statement. Well, how about verses 2 through 4? Aren't they mutual? Right? What? Each man is to have his own wife. Each woman is to have her own husband. Husband must fulfill his duty to his wife. Wife to her husband. Wife doesn't have authority over her own body. Husband does. Husband doesn't have authority over his own body. The wife does. It's mutual from start to finish, verses 2 to 4. All right? That's, that indicates the fact that he's dealing with marriage, and we're going to see something that he's dealing with it in a way that's revolutionary for the time, and I dare say revolutionary throughout the Christian era, because the, the culture, the pagan culture at that time, the, the culture ever since, has always made it an unequal thing, has always made it that it's the man whose needs have to be fulfilled, and that's the deal with marriage. That's not the Christian viewpoint. It's a mutual thing. Both husband and wife have needs. Both husband and wife have a body that's owned by the spouse. All right. By the way, that's a good, good indication that women are alone, allowed to own property <laughs> because they own the husband's body. <laughs> but that's a whole other story. Revolutionary. Revolutionary. Mutual. All right. Verse 2. Because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife and each woman is to have her own husband. Boy, on the surface of it, doesn't that suggest a very low view of marriage? Why do we get married? Because of immorality. Now, does it, do you think that's the teaching of the Christians, of the Christian scriptures about marriage? That its purpose is to avoid immorality? Its only purpose? What about love? What about a picture of the union between Christ and his church? Right? What, what about the, it's interesting, something else that's not mentioned at all here is procreation. In other words, babies. <laughs> babies aren't here. Not, now, that doesn't mean that babies aren't supposed to be there in a marriage, because like, that's the conventional thing that kind of happens. You know, when, you, when you have intercourse, eventually, one way or the other, even if you're not trying half the time, you're going to have a baby. Not mentioned here. Why? Because Paul is dealing with a limited issue. It's not, it's not a comprehensive teaching on marriage. Verse 2 does not mean that people should get married to avoid immorality. I know that's what it looks like on the surface. That's not what he's saying. You see, first of all, the thing you have to understand is, remember the mutual? Starting in verse 2, he's already addressing people that are already married. When he says that each man is to have his own wife, he's already married. After all, it's called his wife. Each woman is to have her own husband. 
They're already married. It doesn't mean to get married. It means something else. In other words, have, you know, each woman is to have his own uh, each man, whoa, each man is to have his own wife, each woman is to have her own husband. It doesn't mean get. It doesn't mean he's, she's to get a husband and he's to get a wife. Why? Because they're already married. It, it doesn't say they should get married. It says something else. I won't give you the Greek word, but I'll say it. It's echo. And I'll tell you something about it. It's in the present tense. Uh, you don't, you know, if you know what that is in the Greek, great. If you don't, I'll explain it. It just means that this is an ongoing thing. Right? So if this meant to get married, that would mean like every Sunday you would show up and you'd have family on both sides and you'd be dressed in white. And once again, because it's an ongoing thing, you'd get married again. So it's not getting married. It's something about being married. Okay? Here, that word have means this. To take, hold, and enjoy. That's what it's talking about. Each man is to take, hold, and enjoy his own wife. Each woman is to take, hold, and enjoy her own husband. It refers to the sexual union between husband and wife. Let me demonstrate. All right, let's go back to chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians. Okay, to see that have means, in this context, means to take, to hold, to enjoy the sexual union. Here between husband and wife. Chapter 5, something else. But let's take a look at it. 1 Corinthians 5.1. Same verb, by the way. In a very different context, but it's still a sexual context. It is actually reported that there is immorality among you, an immorality of such a kind that does not exist even among the Gentiles. Notice what? That someone has his, his father's wife. Does that mean that someone has married his father's wife? No, it can't mean that. Why? Because it's his father's wife. Okay? No, it doesn't mean married in the sense of a legal contract and entering into a marriage. It means having sex with his father's wife. That's, so it's the same thing. Have, father's wife, having to do with, this case, illicit sexual behavior. But now where we are now in chapter 7, verse 2, have his own wife means having sex with his own wife have a woman having sex with a husband. Now let me ask you something. He starts off saying, listen, we don't want immoralities here. Okay. If someone just gets married to somebody, and let's say they remain celibate, they're married illegally, but they don't have sex with one another. Is that any protection against immorality? No. No, it's only if they're having sex together. That's the best protection against immorality. I want to be clear about that. He's not defining marriage as being its purpose is to avoid immorality. He's saying when you're married, the thing to do is to have sex, and that will avoid the straying and the other behaviors that would, could otherwise go on. All right. Getting married but not having sex doesn't do a thing to eliminate the temptation. And remember, we'll see more of this, but people that get married, by and large, don't have the gift of celibacy. Which means what? They have strong desires. Okay? If they're not meeting those desires in the marriage relationship, then there's a big chance they're going to go and do an immoral thing to meet that desire. Because it's a very strong one. In fact, when it comes to the lusts of the flesh, sexuality is probably the strongest one. All right? The strongest one. It takes a lot for that to be dealt with. Okay? So this is the way to deal with it. 
If, now, if you, if you don't have strong desires, that's an indication that you've been given the gift of celibacy, and that's a whole different thing. Most do not have that gift. All right, verse 3. The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife, and likewise also the wife to her husband. Verse 4. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Again here, context matters. You know, the duties in verse 3 are not bringing home the bacon and frying it in a pan. In other words, yes, the husband has a duty to, you know, provide for his family absolutely, right? Does a woman have the kind of duties in the household? Yeah, that's not what this is talking about. Context matters, right? Here again, it's a good thing I'm not a blushing kind of guy, because here again, duty refers to offering one's body to the other for the purpose of having sex. That's the duty that's in view here. Okay, make no mistake. Offering one's body to the other for the purpose of having sex. Now, how is this verse often used? Okay, especially by men in the church. I'll tell you how it is. I've seen it firsthand. They take it as giving permission to the husband to lord it over his wife. To say, whenever I want to have sex, you have to give it to me. That's the way it's often used. But that is not the thing at all that's here. Remember mutual. Remember agreement. You see, what I just described, hey, whenever I want to have sex, you have to give it to me, woman. That's how the pagans saw marriage. This is Christian marriage. It's a totally different thing. And as I said before, what Paul's saying here is revolutionary at the time. You know, really and truly, in the Roman culture and in the Greek culture, they saw women as property, that they were lesser than the man, and that they were there for the use and the pleasure and the service to the man. That's how the pagan culture saw it. I dare say that we have, we've had a strain of that for a long time, not just in ancient Rome, but that's been a, that's been a theme throughout the, the, the church age. That in the culture, that's the mentality. Okay. You know, I mean, give me an example. There was something called the, the Playboy philosophy, right? Named after the magazine. It was the same thing. Women exist as objects to please men. Same thing. So Paul's saying something revolutionary. For then and for now. Again, let me mention this again. I'm going to read it to you again. Everything in verses 2 to 4 is mutual. The husband and wife are equal partners. Now, what's the context? Sexual intercourse. Okay? In that in particular, they're equal partners. Okay? Let me read it to you again. Verse 2. But because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife and each woman is to have her own husband. Mutual. Both mentioned. Verse 3. The husband must fulfill his duty to the wife and also, likewise, the wife to her husband. Mutual. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise also, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. It's a mutual compact, a mutual agreement. They both have rights, they both have responsibilities in this area. It's a revolutionary concept. As a matter of fact, if you look at verse 3, I hope you see that it begins with the husband's duty to the wife in the area of sex, right? 
The husband must fulfill his duty to the wife. That's first. That's revolutionary. That's no, that is not the way that men saw it back then and now. Okay? He leads with the husband. That gives you a good indication that this is a mutual thing. Mutual agreement to make love. With the emphasis, by the way, on love. You see, that's the thing about all, all Christian relationships um, and, not, and, and marriage is not an exception to that. The only way this is going to work is with mutual love, one for the other. After all, what is this saying? It's saying, my body is yours, and your body is mine, and we have become one flesh. And see, this can get tricky, all right? And I'm going to like inject a little humor at this time, please, you know. Let me do so. The husband, picture it now. The husband says to the wife, just read this passage, and said, hey, you know what? I have authority over your body. Mm-hmm. Well, tonight, I want your body to get together with my body. The wife says in, in reply, well... I have authority over your body. And I would really just as soon keep your body, which I have the right over, away from my body tonight. You see how they can get a little tricky? How is this going to work? The only way is to respect both authorities, because they're there, is by mutual consent. Now, we've got to get together and agree on this, otherwise it's never going to work. It's never going to work. Now, that's where the other Christian virtues come into the picture. Right? How does that work? How are you going to respect both authorities by mutual consent? Well, first of all, it requires communication. It does not call for somebody to come barreling into the, the bedroom and say, aha, I'm here. Right? It's communicate. Communicate ahead of time. That's one thing. Sensitivity. Somebody's not feeling well. Well, you know what? You've got to be sensitive to that. Okay? Now, on the other hand, if somebody has a headache every night, you've got to start to wonder, but that's another story. Respect. Respect for one another. Patience with one another. Of a lot of this area of, of married life requires a lot of patience. It really, really does, because otherwise there can be a lot of frustration, anger, resentment, and then compassion for one another. Compassion for, for somebody's shortcomings in this area. Compassion for somebody's whatever, background and, and limitations and, and, and hang-ups and anxieties. You've got to have a lot of compassion for one another. And one other thing you do need is time away from the kids. If you don't have that, it's going to be kind of hard. So all of that comes into play. Verse 5. Verse 5. Stop depriving one another. Whenever somebody says stop doing something, what does that imply? No, 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 what is it? Right, yeah, it does mean, it means stop. But what does it imply? They're doing it, <laughs> right? If I say stop hitting your brother, what does it mean? You're hitting your brother. So when he, says, when he tells the married couples in Corinth to stop depriving one another, what does that mean? They were depriving one another. Now, there could be a lot of reasons for that, but one of them, remember verse 1, one of them was that some of the people in Corinth who were married were saying, you know what, honey, I'm not going to have sex with you anymore because I agree with the celibacy crowd and I think I'm going to be more spiritual if I don't. Depriving one another. Stop depriving one another. Isn't this so, totally um, the opposite of what the world thinks, our God thinks about sex? He's saying that it's a problem if you're not having it in a marriage. 
That's what he's saying. Now, I'm not saying that there can't be circumstances and medical conditions. I'm not talking about any of that. But as a general rule, in a marriage, this part of it, and there are good reasons for that. So if you, if you don't have one of those limitations and you're just saying, I don't want it anymore because I want to be more spiritual and go off my own and live my own relationship with God now, and sorry, right? He's saying, don't do that. Stop that. Notice, except by what? Agreement. Agreement for a time. In other words, you both have to agree. You both have to say, you know what? Yeah, for a time, let's not. There's other things we want to do. Maybe this is a time for us to dedicate to our prayer life and so forth. We're going to see, by the way, he's going to say that he's doing this as permission, not command. He is not commanding. And this is another place where people get it wrong. He's not commanding married couples to to stop having sex for a while every few months to enhance their prayer life. He's not even saying that your prayer life will be enhanced, right? Because otherwise, what does that mean? Well, sex is bad for the prayer life. <laughs> you know, how can that be true when the, when, when, the, when the Lord has designed it to be part of the marriage? So he's not commanding it. He's allowing it. He's allowing this to happen. But even at that, he says, after that, after a short time, really, come together again. Why? Notice why. So that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. In other words, if you stay apart too long, there will be temptation, open door to temptation. All right. So again, the context, some husbands and wives had stopped having sex. Probably because they thought it would bring them to a higher spiritual plateau. All right. Paul has to deal with that. Paul basically says here, that you're ripping off your partner when you do that. You're ripping off your partner. You're, 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 you're frauding them. Why? You know? Well, because that is, you're taking from them what is rightfully theirs. This is the mindset that married couples have to have about it. Notice mutual, by the way, agreement for a time. In other words, the husband can't enter the household on Mardi Gras and say, you know what? I'm on a spiritual quest for the next 40 days. I'm giving up sex for Lent. Maybe maybe you don't know what Lent is. You're probably better off. But Lent was a 40-day period between Ash Wednesday and Easter for the Catholics to give up something. Little kids would give up candy. Adults didn't know what to give up. But maybe people in Corinth said, I know, I'm going to give up sex. I don't really want it anyway, so I'm going to make my... My partner suffered for Lent. After all, that's what Lent is for. No, mutual agreement. If both of you agree to do it, fine. But again, don't do it for too long. Don't go without sex for too long. Why? Because that opens the door to both of you, one or both, to be tempted to stray. I want to say something about lack of self-control. See that at the end of verse 5? So that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. This is not a slam on their character. He is not saying that, there's, that you have there's something wrong with you, that you haven't developed enough, you should have self-control. He's not saying that at all. He's talking about the situation. He's saying, here's the situation I'm talking about. You have, you have not had sex with your partner for a while. That's the situation. And see, when, when you've done that, when you've given up sex for a time, and again, you're married, you don't have the gift of celibacy, you have desires, guess what? You've given it up, you're vulnerable. It's a situation. It's not a character flaw. It's a fact. You're going to be more vulnerable from sexual temptation from illicit sources. That's all he's talking about. It's the self, that's what the self-control here, lacking it, you know. 
It's kind of like saying if, uh, if you have pneumonia, right, you lack the ability to run a marathon. It's the same thing. It's situational. All right. Verse 6. You can see I'm moving right along with this subject. <clears throat> but this I say by way of, again, permission. Makes it a lot clearer. Okay? I say this by way of permission, not of command. I wish that all men were even as myself am, celibate. However, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. Notice in the subject of abstaining from sex, what does he say? I, t- I say this by way of permission, not of command. In other words, he's not commanding them to abstain from sex. He's permitting them to do it. It's the exception to the rule. He's given them permission to do it. He's not commanding them to do it. You know, there are, there are some people that take this in a rather legalistic way, and they tell the compos, you know, every two months you ought to be abstaining for two weeks so that your prayer life can be improved. This isn't a command. He says you have permission for a while. If you do it too long, it's going to be problematic, but for, for, you have it permission. Not, you're not commanded to do it. Remember, he's addressing married people here. He's addressing married people. Now, as he goes on in verse 7, he now is going to tell them his own view, particularly in his own life. You see, he was one of those who had received that gracious gift from God to remain celibate. He had that gift. As an apostle, he had a lot of gifts. This would happen to be one of them. He was given that gift. By the way, you know, this gift is not something mystical, you know. It's really kind of simple. It just means that God had given him a very mild sex drive. (laughs) That's what it means. Because he's as human as anybody else. See, that gift allowed him to remain contented without getting married, without having sex. Now, why was that a gift to Paul? Well, very simple. It was a gift to him because it freed him up to spend all his time and energy on the things of the Lord. And when you're Paul and you have the calling that he had, you needed this gift. You needed this gift. Why? Because it means he's free all the time to travel all over the Roman Empire and preach the gospel, to get in all kinds of scrapes, to be left for dead, and all those other things. Right? Because he was free of concern. Well, what about my family? What about my kids? What's going to happen? Who's going to support them? Right? i got to get back for the baseball game, you know, and all, all of that. See, he could not possibly have been married in particular. Now, some of the apostles were, okay? But those guys stayed close to home, all right? One of the things about Peter and John was that they stayed in Jerusalem most of the time. Not Paul. Paul was on the road, okay? It would have been unfair for him to have a wife and kids with the calling and the life that God has asked him to uh, accomplish. If he had a family, impossible. What does that say? It basically only says that married men, in particular, have a different calling than celibate men. They just do. All right? If they don't fulfill it, by the way, the Bible says they're worse than an unbeliever. If a married man does not fulfill, particularly his financial obligations to his family, his wife and kids, they're worse, they're behaving worse than an unbeliever. That tells you that, that, that there are people who are given the gift of marriage and that that comes with their own responsibilities and they have to fulfill those. You know, there, there are people, particularly immature Christians, that, that, that they get off willy-nilly thinking, oh, I, I, have, I have this t- totally new experience in God. I'm going to ditch my family and go become a missionary. 
no, no, God doesn't want that. Right? He, unless, of course, if the, if the wife wants to be that too, of course. But in, in most normal circumstances, other people have quit their jobs. Men are saying, you know, I, I think I have the gift of pastor. I'm going to go quit my job and go to seminary for four years. Meanwhile, my family's sitting there, you know, and they don't have enough food. No, that's wrong. We are, men who are married are supposed to, you know, pr- provide for their families. If we don't, we're worse, behaving worse than an unbeliever. Men are to sacrificially love their wives. Sacrifice retires, requires time, effort, and concentration. They're to provide for and protect the family. They're to bring up children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. You, you can't do that if you're never home, guys. You can't do it. You've got to be there for the kids. I know. I learned the hard way for a time on that. Now, here's the thing. Now, it's interesting because you might say, wait a minute, wait a minute. Didn't Paul say here that he wished that everybody was like him? And, of course, he did. I mean, there it is, right? In verse 7, yet I wish that all men were even as thyself am. However, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and the other in that. What could he mean by that? Well, Paul could wish that all could be celibate. Why? Very simple, because he knew the freedom of it. And he kind of wished, boy, I wish you had this freedom that I have. Okay? However, he knew his wish could never be fulfilled. I mean, it's the same thing in Romans chapter 9 where he says, I, would, I could wish that I could be separated from Christ and accursed if it meant that my brother and sister Jews could be saved. That was a desire he was expressing, but it could never be fulfilled. I'm going to illustrate it another way. You see... Let me say this. He knew, Paul knew that this wish that everyone would be celibate couldn't be fulfilled. And more to the point, it wasn't God's will that it be fulfilled. It was just an expression of desire. You know, you're sitting there on a beach in the Caribbean and you say, man, I wish so-and-so could be here with me. Right? That kind of thing, you know. It's a desire. Not practical. Not realistic. It might not even be good. You know, so-and-so, again, may have some responsibility stateside and so forth. It's another illustration. An astronaut, right? That's a unique uh, elite calling, right? Not everybody gets to be an astronaut. But now he's up there in space and he says, wow, I wish everyone could experience what I'm seeing right now, right? That's a natural desire. And it it, it was real. It was honest. But he knows they can't, right? He knows they can't. Certainly doesn't mean that earthbound people are inferior, that they're deficient. Of course not. It's just a desire. It's just a wish, And here's the bottom line. The married life and the single life are both gifts from God. Think about it. Any any church needs both, right? After all, you know something? It would be really hard to find elders if none of them were married. Why? Because they would be the husband of one wife, and they would have to have kids who believe. So if they were celibate, they couldn't be a husband, and they couldn't have kids who believe. So you've got to think of this common sense, practicality, Okay? Most men and women have the gift, don't have the gift of celibacy. They have, they have the gift of getting married. All right. I know that sounds hopelessly old-fashioned this morning. Because after all, you know, I haven't talked at all about women in careers. I haven't talked at all about the gay lifestyle or any of that. The reason why is because it's not, it's not what Paul's talking about. He doesn't mention any of that. Okay. Well, no, he does mention the gay lifestyle. He does, right? We've seen that a couple of times. What does he say about it, though? He basically says that those who are 
Unbelievers living in that lifestyle will not have an inheritance. They're still under the wrath of God. So it's clearly wrong. It's clearly sinful. Okay? But see, now he's looking at the, d- the design. Right? What's, the, what's God's design? What, who, who has he made us to be? He's made, he made Paul to be celibate. He made most people to get married. That's basically what he's saying here. All right. We're on the home stretch. Verse 8. 1 Corinthians 7, 8. But I say to the unmarried and to widows that it is good for them if they remain even as I. But if they do not have self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn. So up till verse 8, Paul has been dealing with the subject of celibacy for married couples. He's been addressing the married couples. He's been talking about husbands' duty to wives, wives' duties to husbands, right, so forth. He's saying that you can, say you, can, you can do without sex for a while, but come together again, married couple, right? Through verse 7, dealing with the married couples. Now in verse 8, he's now going to address the same subject, but he's going to talk to the unmarried people. He's already said celibacy, totally off the table if you're married. Forget what the celibacy crowd is saying. But now he turns to the unmarried, and that's, of course, it's a different situation. He's addressing that particular situation, though, and not a general one. The question is, how does the subject of celibacy relate to the unmarried? How does the subject of celibacy, which is the subject of verses 1 through 9, how does it relate to the unmarried? It's a good question. Well, notice in verse 7, he sets it all up, doesn't he? Each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. That principle holds for the unmarried. Some of them have been given the gift of celibacy. Some have not. Okay? He's saying it's the same principle. The same principle. In other words, when, you, when he's addressing the unmarried, he's saying, you know what? Some of you have, will have the a gift, the ability, you'll be able to live the celibate life. When I talk about the missions, and I think about the fact, and I say some of you may have a calling to be a missionary, Right? I say that, but it doesn't mean everybody does. It means some, a few, have been gifted for that. Same thing here. Some unmarried people have been given the gift of celibacy, and they're able to live the celibate life. What does that mean? Again, it's not mystical. You don't have strong desires for a member of the opposite sex, either physical or romantic. You just don't. Okay? A lot of people panic or think there's something wrong with that. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. It's legitimate. In fact, it's a gift. And it gives you advantages in the Christian life. It enables things, you to do things in the Christian walk that married people can't do. And as I've mentioned already, that's true of every spiritual gift. By definition, a spiritual gift is a unique manifestation of the Spirit that is given to an individual so that they will have an ability that the rest won't have. All right? Same principle. Notice, though, in addition to the unmarried here in verse 8, he also says what? To the unmarried and to widows. Okay, widows are a special case. I want you to see this. Please turn to 1 Timothy 5, verse 14, where Paul addresses the situation of widows. Okay, and I want you to see what he says here. 1 Timothy, chapter 5, verse 14. 1 Timothy 5, 14. I'll give you a moment to get there. Keep it in mind that in any population, some have been given a gift of celibacy, and most haven't. Only now, you're going to talk about it in terms of age. Age. Okay? 
Those of us who may be a little older have observed something about our sexual desires. Not all, but in most cases, they diminish. They diminish, okay, as you get older. Just the way it is. And that's true of widows. Let's take a look at it. Verse, verse Timothy 5.14. Therefore, I want, what? Younger widows to get married. If you're young, I want you to get married and bear children and keep house and give the enemy no occasion for reproach. For some have already turned aside to follow Satan. Notice that. The ones who decided, you know, young widows, I'm not going to get married. I'm going to do my own thing. And that's a big temptation. Just like he said about the married couples who, who don't have sex for too long. But quite simply notice, though, he's making a distinction here between younger widows and older widows. And I don't know why this is, but the magic age is 60. You'll have to deal, bring that up with God. I have no idea why that is. Especially back then. I'm not sure if anybody lived to 60. But they, they must have. I'm just kidding. But, you know. Yeah, he's saying, listen, younger widows, I want you to get married again. Older widows, you have a different calling. Older widows who meet certain qualifications can remain single and, as a matter of fact, be supported by the church. That's what the Bible says. Keep that in mind. However, what? Paul tells younger widows to get married. (laughs) Why? Again, I want you to think about this. What's the definition of a widow? You can talk in church. What's a widow? Maybe not all at once. (laughs) Somebody who's whose husband's died, right? That's a widow. What does that mean? It means at one time she was married. So does she have the gift of celibacy? If at one time she was married? If they're young? No. Most of the time they don't, right? Otherwise they wouldn't get married, right? If they didn't have any sex drive or any romantic feelings for the member of the opposite sex, they probably wouldn't get married. Being married is a, sort of an indication that probably they have some of those desires, okay? And if they're young, they still do. They still do. All right, so they don't have the gift of celibacy. And again, their sexual desires are probably still strong due to their relative youth. Keep that in mind. Let's go back now to verse 9. We're going to close up. 1 Corinthians 7, 9. I must slow down in the course of preaching up here. Because, man, I, I was through page 10, and it was like I had like a half hour left. I'm like, oh, my gosh, I'm going to end really early today. But then somehow or other, I always get to the same time, the same, I don't know. Verse 9, 1 Corinthians 7, 9, this will be it. But if they do not have self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn. People, commentators, pastors dance around that word burn. It really means sexual and romantic passion. That's what the word means here, you know. That's what he's saying. He says, if it is better to marry than to burn, have this overwhelming sexual and romantic passion. Now, self-control. If they do not have self-control, let them marry. He's not saying that those of you that are weak and are not as good as the people that can control their sex urges, okay, fine, for you, you better marry. That's what it sounds like, right? But that's not at all what he's saying. Basically, go back to the principle here. It basically says that you know what? Self-control people in this context just means that your sexual and romantic desires are minimized and well-contained. You're able to live your life without a need to fulfill them. However, if those desires are strong, okay, you'll be frustrated and miserable if you remain celibate. 
It's, that's what he's talking about, self-control. He's saying it's a gift. The gift not to have that strong thing that gets you out of control. I mean, we can attest to that. People fall in love or whatever. It's not, you get out of control. You're a little crazy. But if you don't have those strong urges, then you can remain celibate. You're controlled in that area. Most aren't. If your desires are strong, you'll be frustrated and miserable if you remain celibate. And again, you'll eventually end up satisfying those strong desires in the wrong way. So what's the remedy for that? You should marry. Real simple. All right, we're done today. Next week, it gets even thornier. Because I don't know if you, many of you may know this, but verses 10 to 16 are about the really pleasant subject of divorce. So we're going to see that as well. All right, let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you once again today for leveling with us in your word, but also for allowing us to understand the distinctions that uh, your word often makes and so that we shouldn't overgeneralize things. We ask also, Father, that you would reveal to us, if you haven't already, what in the area of sexuality, what you've gifted us to be. We pray also, Father, for the grace for the married couples to live out their calling and the same for the celibate people to live out theirs. And we ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. All right, we'll be gathering together again Thursday, Thursday evening at 7, back in the family room where the food is. All right, we're going to have Bible study there. Um, Again, please give us your prayer requests. We pray on Thursday night. We want to pray for what you want us to pray for. All right, um, one other thing, just to remember, everybody understands the gospel, okay? And that is real simple, that we're sinners. We're born that way. Jesus Christ was given as a gift the Son of God became man so that he would go die for us at the cross. And then he's buried, and three days later, he's raised from the dead on the third day. As an unbelievable miracle demonstrate that everything he said about himself is true, that he is the Son of God, and he's the Savior of the world. And now the Lord turns to you and says, Look, I've done it all. I've dealt with the sin problem at the cross. I'm not asking you to do anything. I'm asking you to believe, trust, say that, you know what? I'm going to take God at his word, and I'm going to trust that Jesus Christ is my Savior. The moment you do that, you're born again forever. You can't lose it. God credits you with his righteousness, and it gives you the gift, great, great, great gift of eternal life. Believe on the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. All right, let's close briefly, and we'll, we'll get on with this. Father, we thank you for the gift of, God's, of, of the God-man Jesus Christ and the salvation that is through his blood, his death on the cross. We ask you, Father, that we would, if we've never believed that, Father, that we would finally see the truth and believe it. If we have believed it and we're your adopted children, we ask that you would help us to be be strong and secure and have the security that we are saved forever and have eternal life and will always be your children. We ask it all in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. All right, y'all dismissed at this point. I will be up for a few minutes. If you have any questions, feel free to come by. All right, have a great day.